Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wise Cracks Movie Podcast. Show me the napalm, baby! I love the smell of podcasting in the morning. In what up? In the evening, yeah. In the evening, wherever you are in the world. What up, everybody? I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Ryan Haley. Sup, film fans? And we've got Raymond, the mind cinephile Kramer. Uh, That's right, this week we're talking about the classic Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola, starring Martin Sheen, Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, a young Lawrence Fishburne, Dennis Hopper, Harrison Ford's in there, etc, etc, etc. I watched the theatrical version this time around. Um, so, but there's, like, the Redux version, which is, like, four hours long, uh, there's, like, the, 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 the 4K version, so, I mean, we'll talk about some of the scenes that aren't included in the theatrical one, like the, um, what is it, the French, uh, French yeah, col- the colonial plant, yeah, the, the plantation, that, that, because there's some interesting, like, history stuff that helps you understand about, a little bit more about the conflict of the Vietnam War, so some interesting things there, also, it's just an interesting scene, like, why was it cut, is there something valuable in it, like, does it need to be retained for you to, to get the gist? of the film so we'll talk a little bit about that but I mean I rewatched the theatrical version even though I have seen Redux um, in the past but yeah so that's what we're going to be talking about this week I do real quick before we get into our first impressions I want to just um, remind people that we have a new Twitter page so please go and give us a follow smtm underscore pod that's smtm underscore pod uh, Raymond's been like after we record an episode or after we release an episode he's been doing threads like last week what was your thread on was it on South Korean cinema in general or yeah I, I, some folks in the chat were asking for uh, recommendations on South Korean cinema and I, I posted a whole thread of recommendations breaking down a handful of uh, prominent filmmakers uh, more prominent works um, so uh, yeah if you're if you're really if you're looking for next steps after watching uh, Snowpiercer Parasite uh, there's tons of recommendations there on Twitter hell yeah I want to go look at that list yeah fuck yeah, yeah. so it. you can follow Raymond individually and then we're going to start making sure that we share those things on the Twitter page extra tidbits and bonus things and things like that so give us a follow smtm underscore pod also favor if you love show me the meaning can you please run over to apple podcasts and give us uh, a, a five-star rating and a review so that it helps boost the algorithm so more and more people can join in on the show me the meaning fun so yeah that would be great or if only if you love it triflers need not apply <laughs> that's right and if there's another way like if you listen to us on a different app and there's another way like a Spotify if you could leave a Spotify rating and review same sort of thing whatever it is um, we love you we'd really appreciate that okay now housekeeping stuff out of the way let's get into first impressions I don't know what it was like the first time uh, y'all saw this because it may have been when you were super young I imagine that we've all seen this multiple times so let's try to, to scrape beneath the layers of I don't know, popular hype and all of the shit that surrounds these films that are canonized as classics. And let's say, what was it like the first time you watched this? What do you think about this film? How does it stand up? What's it been like on repeated viewings? Let's start with Raymond. Um, I think I first watched this in high school and it was probably on Turner Classic Movies or something. I I know I saw it on TV. And, um, you know, I don't really remember what my response to it then uh, when uh, I was when I was in like eighth grade high school and started be- becoming more interested in movies. I think my response to a lot of stuff was like, oh, this is a classic, so I'm going to force myself to like it. And e- even if I didn't really have a good read on it or anything like that, I didn't really learn how to watch movies until later in my life. But I knew that I wanted to learn. Um and then I I rewatched it uh, probably ten years ago, and I loved it. It was just one of those movies that it kind of reaches through the screen and really really pulls you in. Um, a lot of a, a lot of longer movies like this that that get near three hours, they can be a bit daunting for folks. It's one of those things where even the essentials you kind of put on the back burner because you're you're not ready to to set aside that big a chunk of your day but as soon as you put this one on it the the same thing happened to me this morning i i turned it on and from that first shot with the fucking trees getting scorched and the doors playing you're just like yeah this is this is fucking cinema man um it's it's pretty great i also uh i rewatched the um 
the documentary about its making, the Eleanor Coppola-directed film, uh, Hearts Heart of, of Darkness. Darkness. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, it, it just the, the stories uh, about making this movie are are fascinating. Also, she, she wrote a book about its making called Notes, which was just her diary from the production process. And that's also really, really telling. There's a lot of great stuff to talk about this film, its legacy, uh, its value as just a piece of filmmaking itself, uh, the the behind the scenes stuff. I think this is going to be a great conversation, gentlemen. Sweet, sweet, Ryan. What about you, brother? Yeah, I the, the, this movie's gone through a evolution in terms of of how I viewed it too. Very similar to Raymond. I, I think I saw this movie way too young. Like it must have been like around like when Saving Private Ryan came out or something because I was like I wanted to watch all these war movies, but uh, uh, you know this this movie does not play. As it's not as accessible as a Saving Private Ryan to a you know twelve or thirteen year old kid, um, and and but but then I, I I remember the first time I really sat down and absorbed this movie and kind of felt like I got it was in film school you know because Walter Murch edited this and uh, famous editor Walter Murch and and you know they kind of teach you as a master class. Uh, or uh, the beginning of this movie is like a master class in editing, especially with like the whole. Uh, I, I remember especially the, the helicopter uh, match cut with the fan, you know, or, or at least the sound effect, no, not the match cut, but like the, you know, the sound effect playing over the fan. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that whole sequence of him kind of just, you know, you're really kind of getting into Willard's psyche through the cuts and through the way he's filming it and through the music. And yeah, like you said, total cinema. He's using, he's playing with all the tools and creating this, creating this atmosphere that especially, you know, when it came out, I'm sure was super innovative and awesome. And, you know, it really creates this, this tone, but then even now it holds up. Like it, it, it feels like it's very much from its time and, and place. Uh, mm. and, and, and it's interesting now after with, after time goes by just uh, looking at it, you know, with a 2021 perspective, I will say that the theatrical cut, I now, I have not seen the final cut, which I regret not using this time to watch it, that. Um, I just, I don't know. Yeah. I don't have access to it. I could have found it, but whatever. I did. When did, when did that come out? It was just recently, right? A couple of years ago. I still, and, I still haven't seen the final cut either. The conventional wisdom from what I've read with interviews and stuff is, you know, the theatrical cut, is the theatrical cut and then the redux they put in yeah like oh like an hour worth of stuff which to me is egregious i've seen the redux version and i really kind of don't like it at all i mean like fuck that <laughs> fuck the redux it's cool but it's just to me uh, like you were saying before and i'm sure we'll get into this like they just added so much and, and made it so bloated like your movie you should be arrested if your movie's <laughs> over three and a half hours for no reason. And, uh, 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 but then I, I've heard that the final cut kind of takes the super weird psychedelic elements of mm. the fur of the theatrical. And then also adds back in a few, some of the, uh, uh, added stuff to kind of, I don't know. It's a more, it's kind of, it sounds like it's, they split the difference and put somewhere. Yeah. There. You so lose, you lose a little bit of the psychedelia, uh, in the redux because it is so elongated. The, the pacing, I feel like kind of, yeah. It doesn't feel as uh, as trippy, whereas I feel like with the theatrical, you constantly are kind of placed in a uh, your own kind of like psychic state where the film is kind of like tweaking with your mind a little bit, you know, and it's consistent throughout because it's it's a little more tightly packed. So much of the movie feels like it was kind of found in the edit. Um, you know, the totally that or that opening sequence is a perfect example of that. I highly doubt. I've never read John Milius' script, but I highly doubt it says you know, uh, match cut. Martin oh. Sheen stands, stands in the hotel room doing tai chi. <laughs> you know, like and he has all to accidentally is, cut his hand on the mirror and it, well, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, right. And it, there's his blood. <laughs> there's so much stuff throughout this movie where, like, when when I was reading uh, notes by Eleanor Coppola. There's one segment or one diary entry where she says, like, today's shot is a helicopter landing uh, framed by Robert Duvall's shoulder from behind or something to that effect. It's pretty early in the book. I can't remember. Um, but it's just that, like, today's shot. <laughs> like, they, yeah. like the, the, the stress of this production was such that there were entire days of this 240 or 230 day shoot where it was like yeah we're lucky if we can get one one shot in wow. the can yeah. and uh -huh. you know when you're left with this like mountain of footage that like 
maybe doesn't tell the story you set out to tell, you end up having to do some creative things in the edit. And, you know, maybe uh, maybe the film is better for that. Whereas the Redux feels like a lot of the stuff that they were planning on shooting, they shot as planned, and then it just didn't match the, the tempo of the rest of the movie, you know? No, absolutely not. And that plantation scene, I think, is a perfect example of something that just doesn't, you know, does not make the movie better, in my opinion. And and, and it maybe it maybe it totally slows it down. And and I think it does make maybe what Coppola is trying to say with the movie more clear, or at least this take on the Vietnam War. But I don't think I think that 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 putting that and making it explicit makes the movie worse. Like it, it just it's so much better as this kind of open. I don't know, tone poem, I yeah. call it, uh, 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 about one man's, you know, psyche during this insane combat. Yeah. So there's one last thing I wanted to say, and maybe I'll remember it in a second, but that's basically most of my thoughts. Okay. Of yeah. Austin, if, we, if, we cut off your first thoughts. What do you got, man? No, no. Yeah, Ryan, if you remember what you're going to say, jump back in there. Yeah, we already had a couple people, okay. a couple people in the chat say that the plantation scene, the French plantation scene, scene sucks. So, um, yeah, we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, I do also want to just remind people, we are live right now, so if you want to contribute in the chat, please do. We keep an eye on it, and we'll engage with you throughout, okay? Um, yeah, so the first time I watched this, again, I was too young to, I think, really understand. It was just one of those things where people, I was a young actor, and people were like, you got to watch this movie. And I think when you're a young actor, you oftentimes are attracted to performances. So for me, the first time I saw it, I was obviously a huge Marlon Brando fan because he's just God for a young boy actor growing up um, in, in L.A., right? So I was really curious to see what he would do, and I thought it was really fucking weird, and I didn't get it. Um, I thought Martin Sheen was great. I loved Robert Duvall, and I loved Dennis Hopper, I remember, when I was a kid. So in my mind, I had this memory of like these really eccentric performances and then like a really weird Marlon Brando performance that I didn't quite get because I thought it was going to be like Marlon Brando as this powerful kind of like on the waterfront type of uh, type of like machismo type of character and instead I got this weird like introspective poetic like I don't know um down on life suicidal fucking uh, I'm burned out and I was like what the fuck is this so I didn't get it and then I I saw it again a handful of years ago when I started trying to look at cinema more from a producer and director's perspective, having kind of gone behind the camera, you know? So this is about yeah, maybe seven, eight years ago that I, I saw. And I watched um, I watched the theatrical and the redux. And I was like, oh, I get it now. I was like, I get, I get the... F- I get, I get what's happening now. Okay, I got it. Um, and then I rewatched last night and I watched the theatrical. And I absolutely think the theatrical is better than um, Redux. I haven't seen the, the – or maybe I did see the 4K one. I don't remember if I watched that one as well. But um, – I, uh, I I love the theatrical version. I think it moves. I love what Ryan just said about it being a tone poem. I think it absolutely is. And I agree that I think the French plantation scene, while interesting because it adds some, some explicit ideas that kind of flesh out the context of, of the struggle in Vietnam, if we're going to look at this as a tone poem that is a type of adaptation of the Conrad novel Heart of Darkness... I think the way that the theatrical version is cut, shot, edited, the feel, I think you still get all of the stuff that you that you would need to get about the horrors of war and about who is civilized, who is uncivilized, who is the savage, what is savagery. I think you still get that in this this amazing sort of bifurcation between one culture, one world, the idea of the rational versus the irrational, the evil versus the good, nature versus culture. I still think you get all of that, but I think you get it in a much more enjoyable, and it actually moves. Like, last night I was like, fuck, am I going to watch this two-hour and 45-minute movie right now? And I was like, oh, fuck, like, it moves. Like, it really moves. So... I, I think that this is fucking excellent. Um, it's it's hard sometimes to even say so much about, or to say anything about a film that so much has already been said, but I think that the performances are stellar. I think that the production quality is, like, you know, I, I just turned to the, the girl and I were talking last night, and we're like, they just don't make movies like this. You They don't. Like, there's that shot when he pulls up to Kurtz's encampment at the end, which might be my favorite shot in the whole, there's a couple of really subtle shots that are also absolutely gorgeous, like just a simple one where Martin Sheen's sitting on the edge of the boat, and there's a sunset behind him, and it's just like this, like, it's like a nothing shot that maybe in the hands of a lesser director that wasn't being so meticulous would have just been like, oh, okay, okay, we just need to get the coverage, but this 
was just like the perfect setting and he's like perfectly framed in the center of the frame and this beautiful sunset reflecting off the water behind him. I'm like, that shot, that's a million dollar shot right there. Like that's a fucking gorgeous, amazing shot. And it's just a throwaway shot, you know? Well, they took a whole fucking day to, to shoot it. So, <laughs> I mean, fuck. Better yeah, be a million dollar but, shot. But when he's, when he's pulling up to Kurtz's encampment and you've just got the those people and you've got the fucking red they smoke. They just kind of like emerge from the fog. And... Yeah, and then, and then you see the ruins and then there's like this red smoke behind that's like kind of like behind the ruins coming up out of the jungle and it's like this like it's perpetually on fire kind of idea I don't know it's the most amazing um production I think that that it's unbelievable unbelievable and you understand why it took almost a fucking year to shoot so anyway I think it's absolutely fantastic I can't wait to kind of start peeling this apart um but before we do that uh I gotta go into a recap okay so um this is not even gonna be a sufficient recap but I'm gonna do the best I can to kind of hit the plot points here so during the height of the Vietnam War Captain Willard gets called in by his superiors to perform a classified mission now his past experience with secret ops make him the perfect candidate one of the U.S. Army's own, Colonel Kurtz, has gone rogue, and according to these high-ranking U.S. military officials, his methods have become, quote, unsound, so he must be taken out with extreme prejudice. So Willard joins up with a U.S. Navy patrol boat that has a small crew aboard, and they begin their journey deeper and deeper into the heart of the Vietnamese jungle, or the Filipino jungle in actual terms. But uh, yeah. So along the way, Willard reads letters from Kurtz, studies his military record, and he starts to basically understand a little bit more of Kurtz's psyche and what caused this break. Now, before they reach the mouth of the river, they run into this helicopter squadron that's led by Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore, who's hesitant to help until he realizes that one of the boat members is a famous surfer. And so he decides to take out a whole fucking coastal village where there's a great swell so they can chase some awesome peaks. Now, after this, the boat continues going upriver, eventually reaching the final stronghold of the U.S. military in Vietnam. And at this point, Willard starts to reveal a bit more what the plans are of this secret mission, that they're actually going to go all the way up into Cambodia to take out Kurtz. But the boat captain, Chief Phillips, doesn't really dig with the, uh, dig this idea, so there's a little bit of conflict. However, he ends up getting speared. The young gunman, Clean, he gets gunned down before they can end up reaching Kurtz's encampment. And then they finally do reach Kurtz's encampment, and when they do, they encounter a tribe-like army where there's also an American photographer there who tells Willard all about Kurtz. Kurtz's godlike persona. Willard ends up meeting Kurtz, and Kurtz asks why he's been sent, knowing full well that he was sent to take Kurtz out. But Kurtz lets Willard stay, perhaps believing that he can convert Willard, or perhaps to let Willard carry out his mission and end the horror of living that Kurtz is suffering from. In the end, Willard does slay Kurtz, who utters the final words, the horror, the horror, as he dies. Then Willard slinks off as Kurtz's tribal army bows to him and lets him pass end of film all right we're gonna peel this thing apart but before we do i gotta give a shout out to our sponsor skillshare Skillshare is an online learning community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives and where you can explore projects that you're passionate about. And this is why Skillshare is so friggin' rad because you can unleash your creativity and pursue your passions right for the comfort and convenience of your own home. Skillshare offers thousands of classes for creative and curious people on topics such as videos, production, editing, uh, how to make videos on IG, TikTok, classes for improving productivity, uh, activism at the intersection of art art and activism, doing art for social change, iPhone photography, drone filming, etc, etc. So if you want to explore your creativity and connect with some rad people, go to Skillshare.com slash SMTM and you'll get a free trial of their premium membership. So that's Skillshare.com slash SMTM and you'll get a free trial of the premium membership or you can click the link down in the show notes. All right. First thoughts that you want to really start digging into here. What is the horror? What do we think? What is the horror that Kurtz talks about at the end of the film? The horror, the horror. Uh, Raymond, I'll let you take this. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I always love being the first to sum up an entire movie <laughs> in as brief, brief moments as possible. Give us a sound bite. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Um... Well, isn't it his diary th that he's looking over at the end that just says, like, nuke them all? <laughs> um, it's, uh, I, you know, I think there's this interesting conflict 
with uh, with Kurtz where he recognizes he has sort of reached the edge of the world and there is there is like no coming back from this maybe even if he wants to um you know the, like you you said you didn't understand his performance the first time you saw it Austin but Marlon Brando also didn't totally understand his performance <laughs> in this. there there's this great story on Hearts of Darkness where Francis Ford Coppola is like, yeah, I sat down with Marlon Brando and he was asking me the, these questions about the movie. And at one point he just goes, so why, why are they even on the river? Why are they, why, why are they boating up the river? And he's like, to kill you. And Marlon Brando <laughs> just goes, why do they want to do that? <laughs> like, how fucking, like how fucking lost are you on this thing? But I really do. I, I, I like to interpret that as this, this sense of like futility that we can, you know, he he has sort of established himself as a god within this space, but then he's trapped by that iconography in a weird way. Um, like he's, you know, he he is as much kept as he is keeper. That uh, once once you sort of cross this Rubicon, there's absolutely no going back. And uh, just this notion of like, you know, maybe he is just sort of sitting there, kind of waiting to die. Um, he even has suspicions about uh, Martin Sheen from the beginning that like, are you an assassin? Are you here to kill me? And this, that, and the other, um, you know, in the book. Well, because the remember, they've the- already converted, they've already converted a previous person who was supposed to assassinate him. So he knows, he knows exactly kind of what his role is and, and that people are going to be coming for him. Certainly. You know? and, and, and in the book, by the end of it, Kurtz is like already on death's door and is sort of like a victim of his own of his own ambition. Similarly, it's different. He's like an ivory poacher in that one. Um, and I think by the time they find him, he's like malarial and stuff. Um, but it, it, I, I think that's kind of what it is, is just this sort of underlining the futility of it all that being being at the end of this, this gilded road and, and having to look back and it's just like all fog. Oh, fuck. What am I what am I going to do now? The way I took it, uh, and I don't know if I'm right, but it's just like, uh, you know, this this is a guy who has been in the worst, you know, places on earth in terms of basically like the middle of a war zone and had to do and see unspeakable things uh, uh, all in the name of you know, kind of like we were saying this feudal uh, uh, national conflict uh, that to me, it's, it's about the title of the book, Hearts of Darkness. It's how bad human beings can get if you know if pushed to their limit and he's seen the worst of all humanity and done the worst you know these unspeakable things and so there and like you're saying so he's there at the end of you know he's kind of conquered a whole uh, uh village yet and but also you know he knows what he had to do to get to this point so he's just kind of sitting there despondent like you said maybe kind of waiting to die and so i take it that that here he is he gets you know beaten you know the shit beat out of him by willard in this super violent you know way this he's seen it's the same violence that he's seen and and done to other people and so i think it's to me it's just him uh kind of looking back in his last final moments of of life and being like yeah i've seen some horrors and this is basically this should be how i go out is just this just violent blunt you know attack and Mm. uh and i probably deserve it yeah, it seems like so the film sets up this theme pretty quickly. I love I love you bringing up the editing with Martin Sheen's character who is sort of a man without a home because he talks about when he was there that is in the jungle, he wanted to be back home with his wife, but then when he was there, he wanted to be back in the jungle because they realized that the world doesn't exist anymore. The world that they left doesn't exist. So maybe there was um an innocence, maybe an ignorance, maybe a willful ignorance that was destroyed by coming face to face with the horror of what is inside humanity, potentially, right? And once you see that, once you see that, you can't go back, right? The, 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 you start to realize that that world was maybe all bullshit to begin with, or maybe it's just a world that's not for you anymore. Um, so there's something about that. And then you start to get this discussion, you know, with, with the senior officers when they're recruiting Willard for this mission, where they're talking about how there is, uh, you know, um, like evil in the hearts of men and how 
Um, I love the phrase that they use that that Kurtz's methods have become unsound, right? Like I almost think of logical soundness, like as it being something that, and there, it's unsound, as in like it's a violation of logic. It's a violation of reason. And one of them even says there's a difference between rationality and irrationality, good and evil. And I think this also maps onto what you get of like the jungle people. Going into the jungle, going into the wilderness is where wild is, and that's where nature is bad, and that's where the evilness comes out, right? Um, and, and so I think you get that. And so what I wonder is then, is the horror the horror? I think that there are two readings on it. One could be like the moral reading, which is the one that I think Ryan is kind of espousing. That yeah, in the hearts of men, there's some fucking darkness. And Kurtz says at one point, he says, horror has a face. And that means that it's not this abstract evil devil demon, like metaphysical thing that's out there, blah, blah, blah. No, no, it's human. Horror is human. And all the horror stories, all the ghost stories, all the monster stories, that's just us. And that's just us being um, afraid of the things that we've seen within our own capacities to either imagine or to carry out and to perform. And he becomes the embodiment of that because he's almost like a fucking monster by the time you see him. Like there's light, the way they even shoot him, like he's kind of like, he's a little overweight and he's got that bald head and it's almost kind of, he's monstrous. It's almost like body horror, the way that he's like scraping his head and it's almost like his hand is sticking on his head at one point when he does that that tapping thing and you're like, oh, it's it's kind of gross, like the fly or some shit like that. Like his body is, is, is monstrous monstrous right they, so that's the they one really reading. make lemonade with those lemons like i don't know, <laughs> they, if, you, I don't yeah. know if you know about like the 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 visual conceit there but when uh, marlon brando was cast he was like 30 pounds overweight uh or at least that's what francis ford coppola wanted him to lose before the production and he was like don't worry i'll do it and he had like seven months to lose the weight and he showed up and he was like even fatter than he was yeah. before and coppola told him he was like okay so here's the deal you like this is how you look. You don't look like you're a practiced, you know, military colonel at this point. So yeah. my interpretation of the character now is that you're going to be like gorging yourself on papayas and there's going to be like two beautiful native women who are like clinging to you everywhere you go. And Marlon Brando was like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I feel really self-conscious <laughs> about that. I don't want to do that. And he's like, well, our only other option is to just not show you. And Marlon Brando's like, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, <laughs> that's that better. That's that. better. <laughs> just make me a floating head like fucking Jombie in Pee-wee's Playhouse. And it just fucking works. It's incredible. Yeah, it's like he's like a ghost or some sort of weird apparition. So I think that's the moral yeah. reading of the horror of the accident. horror. It's the face. It's the face of humanity that is the horror. And so for him, he dies almost being sacrificed, right? Because you get that beautiful cross cut between the, the water buffalo being sacrificed with him. And I think it's so poetic in that it's kind of like he's being sacrificed for out of necessity right to make it it's like necessary sometimes to to rid yourself of a virus in your community or something like that right and so he's he's taken out he's taken out for the for the kind of survival the well-being of of these people but nevertheless um it's because he's the embodiment of horror and he's come face to face with with horror because he's lived it and he's uh, he's he's doing these things but then the economic idea is the larger idea of the war like what the fuck is the point of this war altogether and i think francis ford coppola is clearly trying to also point out colonial history which is about exploitation which is about like um political economic greed and avarice which ties clearly into the conrad novel which is all about like just trying to enrich yourself um, and kind of like this unfettered desire for greed, right? So I think that there's both of those ideas that you're really getting with the horror, the horror. But really, what does it all come down to? It's that horror has a human face. Horror has horror is material. Horror, horror is, is is it's us. It is in us. And I think that's Hell kind yeah. of the idea. Yeah, I like that reading. Ryan, Ryan I, loves it. He said he's saying, "Let it out, baby." Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm here for this sermon. I will say, uh, on a f cinematic level. Uh, uh, why and this is something I thought on other movie, times I've watched this movie. I'm like, did this ending really need to be drawn out th this long? Where you know this many talks and stuff, and it, it is. And and then I w I feel like I was kind of vindicated when I read I, I read a bunch of old reviews of this movie when it first came out because it infamously won at uh, Cannes the Palme d'Or with an unfinished cut, right? But then uh, it did not play to everybody. Like like there's a lot of people that thought that it was pretty anticlimactic. In the sense that he, you know, you go on this big adventure that everyone likes and agrees is an awesome, uh, uh, you know, that 
section of the movie is awesome. But then at the end, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of Marlon Brando in the shadow talking. <laughs> well, uh, uh, and then at some point, he get, uh, Mar- Willard gets let out of prison for no reason, basically. And then he kills him. And then, all right, goodbye. End of movie. Well, do you think, why, why does he? Because he lets him out of prison. Well, he lets him out of prison. And he cuts off Chef's head and then puts it in his lap. Like, why... Why do you think he lets him out of prison? Is it because he thinks that he can convert him? Do you think that he can win him over? Or I, th- I think it's because Francis Ford Coppola realized the movie was running too long and he needed it, needed it to end. <laughs> I mean, to me, there, seemingly there's no reason logically for why he's just let out of prison and then, of course, he kills him and then the movie's over. The horror, the horror. I think there, there is – you could read it because so much of it is played ambiguously. You could read it as Austin, like you were saying, that he – he has this confidence that he's going to be able to to win Willard over. You could also read it as a guy who is effectively like committing suicide in a way, yeah. um, like committing suicide by proxy. That he's, yeah. you know, like like we said, he's kind of this is a dude who they establish in the movie is being vetted for top tier positions in the government. That they they even say something about him being, you know, a possible candidate for chief of staff and all this. And Gabriel and, Oto- oh sorry to cut you up, but oh, no, she says good. wanted Willard he wanted Willard to take his place. So that'd be kind of cool if he was good like, thing. I'm gonna commit suicide and well, hopefully Willard takes his And you spot do kind of get that, right? Cause cause the army bow to Willard as he leaves. It's kind of like like the uh, one it's, it's game recognized game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. yeah like, the way that but the way that um uh, what's his name? Kurtz is deified in this movie. I don't think it's a, a stretch to say that there may be a sense that like, oh, we don't have to protect this person. If someone can slay God, they are a God themselves. Yes. Like the the way that everyone surrounds themselves uh, or surrounds Kurtz and, and has exalted him in this fashion. Like you do get that sense by the end of it. That's like, oh, yeah, if you, you know, if, if you can cut off the dragon's head then i'm not going to be the person who steps in to stop you like you're you're a Mm. dragon slayer uh men are not dragons yeah yeah exactly now what do we think is so we got these themes of like the heart of darkness and stuff like that it also seems like there's like an intentional um playing with distinction between maybe like what we would call like western civilization and the jungle right or let's just say like the, the the west versus um the fetishization maybe of the orient which has led to like um obviously like colonial oppression and things like that but there's this really interesting scene where the helicopters are coming in after they have just fucking annihilated this village on this coastal town right and uh there's this woman who takes a grenade and she blows up one of the helicopters and fucking kilgore looks down and says fucking savages right and then the helicopter lands maybe 30 seconds a minute later and written on the front of the helicopter it says death from above so I think I want I wonder here like what is the savage and what is savagery? I mean I think this is tied to the idea of like what's in humanity like that humanity has the capacity to do atrocious things, but do you think there's also this this idea that that Coppola is presenting that there's this um that kind of like what's the like cannibal holocaust does this a lot where it's like actually the cities are just as violent in, as the jungle sort of thing you know like that the like <laughs> i don't know the violence in the jungle in cannibal holocaust is pretty extreme um, <laughs> that's true but this this doesn't take us have, farther um do you do you know where the the, the title came from um, apocalypse now yeah no. So John Milius, uh, back during you know Vietnam War era protests, the the peace sign, which is a mix of the semaphore symbols for for nuclear disarmament, it's the mix of the symbol for N and the symbol for D. Um, he had seen that peace sign around, and a lot of iterations of it said Nirvana now. And in his head, he just had this notion. He was like, you could just add some like a few more lines to the bottom of a peace sign and like some some jet streams and you've got a a fucking fighter jet and then in his head just as he was like thinking about this and just kind of extrapolating that in his mind he just saw like nirvana get erased and then he saw apocalypse now sort of like covering up that you know the top side of the peace sign but i think that's kind of instructive in a way because it is it comes back to that whole like killing for peace thing and Kilgore is the the walking embodiment of that. Like from the moment that we meet him, all of these 
like he's peace he's peacemaker is peacemaker kilgore and, in uh <laughs> fucking yeah, and and all the like uh, all the uh, irony that's inherent to his entire performance like when not only that scene where he's uh you know describing the vietnamese as savages while like uh, two seconds before he was saying like oh yeah we play wagner it really fucking freaks him out i'm like what the fuck does that make you but then he lands and he finds the guy holding his innards into his stomach and yeah and he gives him the water well he goes any any guy who can do that can drink from my canteen any day and then someone else goes oh like there's a surf pro back here and he goes fuck this he throws the canteen (laughs) it's just like this weird performative humanity that is dispensed with immediately when something that like something not necessarily libidinous but something desirable is dangled in front of his face it's just like oh i'm sick of playing soldier now i want to go surf and there is just this like childish enthusiasm for all of it that by by the end i think that his last moment in the movie unless he has a scene afterward i can't remember exactly but i think his last moment in the movie is when he he's doing the famous you know i love the smell of napalm in the morning and he he does this sort of monologue about how it's the smell of victory and then he looks up at martin sheen and he goes you know one day this war is going to end and then just it hangs there like it's the the opening stanza of another soliloquy and then he just walks away and you're just like oh fuck you're not ready for the moment that it ends and like everyone surrounding him is just like oh my god this you know war is fucking hell and this guy is like no i'm you know they even say in the in the voiceover that he had this kind of swagger of like the awareness that he was going to get through this without a scratch like he was just he was born for this shit um, and long story short, I think that all that all ties into the the sort of inherent irony about that character that like he he does sort of represent the like the futility of war the, the that that ironic notion of like I said killing people for peace. Mm. Yeah, Ryan, any thoughts on this man? Yeah, I I, I would uh, go further and be like it's not just that it's the he represents the futility but it's it's like he represents i don't know the 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 type of person that is into that and uh and is in his Mm. yeah gets off on almost the adrenaline of it and 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 yeah that's how he lives essentially is yeah is domineering over over other people whereas i think uh, i like that they had a variety of you know perspectives in the movie on on well, they don't really get into the, you know their thoughts on war, but it's like you can tell from the characters like how much they're actually into it, and uh, I think that, that that itself says something. Well, yeah, and then you do get those those moments where it's like these are young kids that just want to go home. Like they're there. It's like an adventure, maybe. Like some of them are having an adventure. Like Clean is having some fun, and but he it, when he gets killed, it's he's listening to his mother's tape about you know him having children and then them having grandbabies in the family, and and then there's that bit where they pull up to that bridge, which is the final stronghold before they get up into Cambodia, and there's all those fucking soldiers that are like j- jumping to get on. On the boat and they're like take us home take us home right so there's also a sense in which it's like some people are there and they've lost themselves like the guys that are the gunmen in um in that final encampment there up at that bridge right they've kind of lost themselves they're like do you know who the co is do you know who's the commanding officer here and they're just like yeah and they just sort of they've just fucking they've succumbed to the chaos of that 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 bridge which is kind of like i think the the, the, the peak, if you will, of um, destruction, uh, of violence, of, of disorder, right? But then you also get, like, the fucking chef guy who's fucking terrified, and he just wants to go home and make some fucking sauce, you know? He just wants to go back to New Orleans. He doesn't want to get off the boat. He's like, fuck it, these tigers, he freaks out, you know? He's like, this woman was, uh, there's another bit where this woman is going to get a fucking puppy, and we just gunned her down. So he clearly has, like, a fragility about him that hasn't been completely wiped away as well. But those moments are also, you know, they're kind of like little flourishes that kind of just remind you every once in a while, like, oh, hey, these are still humans. There's still a softness. There's still a vulnerability here. It's not completely, not everybody is completely in the Kilgore, in the Kilgore mentality, you know? So there's something there. Yeah, there there's a great, um, you mentioned uh, Lawrence Fishburne in this, who was 14 when they cast him. Um, 
And if you've seen Hearts of Darkness, there's an interview with him uh, when when he was on location there where he's talking about like, I think he was like 15 or 16 when they shot it because it was a little while after they'd cast it. Um, but he says something like, oh, you know, I'm really enjoying making this movie. It's, it, it's a lot of fun. And I imagine it was probably pretty fun for people who were there in Vietnam too. And, and when they interview him as an adult, for like the retrospective, if you see interviews with him uh, about this movie now, you know, he talks, he talks about it as a mature adult would. I, I doubt he even remembers saying that stuff as a 14 year old, but it is one of those things that like you immediately seize on in those moments where it's like, you know, moments before he's gunned down, he's like listening to a tape from his mom. He's dancing around to Mick Jagger and stuff like that. And it's, it is one of those things where um you, you, you do get a sense like, Oh yeah, the, there really is some, I mean, maybe similar to what Marlon Brando was talking about, where it is like, I don't know 100%, you know, maybe Marlon Brando should have known what these guys were doing within the context of the movie, but I don't know 100% that, um, that, that Willard really would, you know, the way that they describe it to him, obviously, it's like, it's in the interests of American empire to, to kill this defector. But then when the rest of the crew finds out what they were doing, they were like, we came all this way just to kill an American dude. Like, we all got fucking killed for this, man. And it's, yeah, it's just yeah. one of those things where, like, oh, yeah, just the idea of him is a threat. He wasn't really bothering anybody, it doesn't seem. Like, he was just kind of living upriver. Um, and it just, it, it is one of those things that kind of, once again, undercuts the 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 monstrousness of this entire affair yeah there's another amazing tension that you're highlighting here which is the adventure of this film there there were moments when i was standing there looking through willard's eyes saying i wonder if willard is like marveling at the beauty of these ruins or this jungle or of the spectacle of these you know, explosions in the sky, you know, like, is there a moment when even Willard, this fucking guy who has a mission, if there isn't some seductive, you use the word libidinous earlier, and I think that's actually perfect, this, this, like, enticed, um, seduced sense where you're like, oh my god, we're on this amazing adventure, you know, and it's boys with their toys, right, they've got this fucking badass boat that's going up river, they saw a fucking tiger, it didn't kill them, they got these sick fucking machines that they're using, these big powerful guns you know they're feeling very virile and they're like fuck yeah dude like there is clearly some kind of you know brotherhood camaraderie adventure like that that you know and i I, we can't watch this film without also recognizing the the psychological effect that this had on entire generation of of young people who came back and when they came back they couldn't reassimilate for all kinds of reasons, not only because the horrors that they saw, but also because the world that they came back to didn't have any capacity to receive them, right? So there's there's a lot of weird, interesting tensions here. It's the horror of war, but also matched to the adventure of exploring, right? And how much is it a part of, like, at least me, in my way that I interpret what it means to be American, is this idea that, like, manifest destiny, like, go and explore, right? And in my older age, I've, I've been been able to kind of look at that critically but as a younger young man growing up it was like fuck I just want to go explore the mountains go explore the rivers go explore these lands that were open for me to explore because I was entitled and thought that I could just do that and then how much more to go explore foreign lands and then how much more to go explore space right and so there's something there's something in that that's this very exciting thing that I think is also there when you look at these young men and even though Willard isn't a young man he's what maybe in his 30s he was 30 36 when he was shooting this had a heart, 30, had a heart attack okay yeah. oh fuck okay so he's in his mid-30s and so he's a man but still there's this idea of adventure and and fun almost that is also there that these that i think they're kind of trying to juxtapose with the horrors that they're also committing which makes it a really interesting thing right and I, I will say, just to dovetail off of that, Austin, what you were saying about uh, these these young men not being able to reassimilate uh, post-war, there is a wonderful documentary. I highly recommend it. It's called Winter Soldier. Uh, it's from the early early 70s. And the, the entire documentary is literally just like a panel of Vietnam veterans giving firsthand testimony of like the atrocities that they committed. And like 
not necessarily like self-flagellating about it, but it's them. It's it it, it was uh, uh it was produced by the uh, the Vets Against uh, Vietnam or Vets Against the the War um, activism group, and it's I mean it's harrowing some of the things that they describe doing. I, I highly recommend anyone who hasn't seen that movie Winter Soldier. It's uh, it's truly truly like heartbreaking, and you know you can tell that these guys are are broken up about uh, what they were put in a position to have to do. Uh, many of them weren't like true believers in all of this. Uh, you know the 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 draft was uh, tearing people away from their homes and their families, and, and you know it's it, like it, it really is. It, it's a devastating and uh, atrocious chapter in American history. Um, and, uh, yeah, I highly, highly recommend, sorry to sideline the conversation, but you bringing that up just, just reminded me of that. I highly recommend Winter Soldier if y'all haven't seen it. Yeah. And, and the last thing I'll say real quick, and then I'll kick it over to Ryan for a quick thought here too, um, is I, I saw like on a panel, Francis Ford Coppola, someone asks him about like why they wanted to make this film. And he says, this film isn't a film about the Vietnam war. This film is Vietnam war. And, uh, for Coppola, I think what he was maybe saying was, um, was that this isn't a film that is at a distance, that is removed from something, that is using a sort of like objective perspective, but rather it's, it's, it's as, as much as it can be done, I'm trying to immerse myself in the sort of psychological ethos of war, and in particular this war in this context. And I think there's something kind of interesting about that as and well. I just so. want to shout out a listener in the chat, uh, Robert Shizanowski, uh, or, or Shurzanowski, uh, apologies if I uh, mispronounced your last name there, just uh, said in the chat, when I returned from my first deployment, we had civilians flown out to our ship to give training on how to deal with decompressing. They talked about how you don't enjoy doing the things you once did, etc. Uh, Robert, I just want to say uh, thank you for your service and, and thank you for uh, taking a moment to be uh, open in the chat about that stuff. That's really fascinating. Absolutely. Um, have either of y'all seen Aguirre Wrath of God? Oh my God, the and Fitzgeraldo? Ver, yeah. Herzog movie? Well, I mean, because Francis Ford Coppola specifically says Aguero, Wrath of God, inspired, you know, the inspired the whole movie and, and especially just how he filmed it. For If you don't know, it's it's uh, Klaus Kinski, and he plays this crazy character. And then, yeah. He plays it, it's, a Klaus Kinski type. Yeah, he plays a Klaus Kinski type, and it, it's very, you can totally. Once you see it, you'll absolutely be able to see the the connections, just because it's a bunch of people on a boat going through the jungle. Yeah. Basically, is the is the main connection. Um, so and yeah. had a, had a very cinema verite style, right? Which I think you kind of get. Yeah. It's as as manicured as Apocalypse Now is. It still is able to kind of maintain a very sort of like happenstance, accidental type of vibe to it. So that makes sense that it would be inspired by that, right? Yeah, totally. I, I brought up Fitzcarraldo when you mentioned Aguirre because while that may have been more of a, a conscious influence on Apocalypse Now, when I watch Apocalypse Now, I think more about Fitzcarraldo just because it is similarly, well, I guess it, it, it and Aguirre share a lot of themes, but it is similarly, um, Werner Herzog's book about making Fitzcarraldo is literally called Conquest of the Useless. Well, and Bird in the Dreams is just like and Hearts Bird of Darkness. And I was about to say, and and Fitzcarraldo also has a Hearts of Darkness style documentary <laughs> called Burden yeah. of Dreams, where it's just the filmmaker the entire time being like, this is a terrible accident. This is a huge mistake. I'm going to die out here and I deserve it. And and it's just like that, that movie and Apocalypse Now are linked in my head always because they just, they both feel like this you know, in 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 uh, Fitzcarraldo, it is quite literally like just pushing this boulder up a mountain. Except in they that, do it's have a boats. fucking steamboat. Yeah, <laughs> they both have boats. Ryan, what is when you when someone says uh, Apocalypse Now? When someone mentions this film to you, what's the first thing you think of? Is there a favorite? Is there something? Yeah, how do you sell this film? Well, the the image that comes to my mind is just super humid, sweaty people. And kind of a orangish to uh, to yellowish tint over and, and and basically Kong Skull Island, uh, as we were discussing earlier, <laughs> you know, and yeah, in a hazy sun, you know, with helicopters kind of uh, uh, blurry in the in the far distance. That's a Is- with the doors playing, of course. Is this one of the greatest films ever made, Brian? Like, is you know, me for me personally, or just uh, if? Yeah, yeah, you personally. Uh, it's probably not on my top twenty now, 
but that's just for okay. me. You know, in terms of if yeah, yeah. you're making the definitive list of movies that pushed it, uh, pushed the boundaries of you know, or created a whole new thing, or were innovative or whatnot. I think that this movie, yeah, I would I would put it in the top 20, 50, maybe ten of of all time. If, if yeah. you're looking at those, you know, if I'm trying to make the AFI list. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's one of my favorite movies, but similar to Ryan, I think it is. When you say, is this one of the greatest movies of all time, Austin? All I hear is, is this one of the most monumental movies ever made? And I think I, I think it may qualify in that regard. And I also think there's something very interesting about this and Alien came out in the same year. And uh, I was watching this with my roommate, who's a cinematographer. And he said, you know, this, for whatever reason, 1979, with this movie and Alien, it was like when modern movies were born. Like, those are the first movies that, you know, war movies before this were like Flying Tigers. It was, you know, Guns on the Navarone. It was all, you know, very, very austere and, and very, like, stiff upper lip and all that. And, and sci-fi movies before Alien were just like, oh, you know, floating paper plates and uh, Gort walking down the you know i love the day the earth stood still but there was a there was a look there was a patina to sci-fi before that kind of felt cheap and then when you watch alien you're like oh my god this is this is fucking monstrous i've never seen anything like this and i i think there is something to that this this movie really fucking changed the game and i think maybe a lot of folks when it first came out if you read contemporary reviews a lot of them are really negative because i think people were just like I don't feel fucking safe watching this. It's it's like it's insane. It, it also, yeah, uh, yeah, because there's the movie, the product of the movie, uh, you know, the movie itself, but then also just from a filmmaking perspective, the story of the movie getting made is so I think crucial to any if you're a big you know filmmaker cinephile type. To it's just such an awesome production to go read about and to learn about. And in terms of also the production, like like to, to me, also this it's kind of the end. Or the ultimate uh, uh, conclusion to the whole 60s, 70s, new new Hollywood cinema. Because you start off with like Easy Rider. Mm. Which to me, Easy Rider has a lot of same cinema techniques as this movie. But on a obviously super smaller scale. Because it's you know made for fucking peanuts for nothing. And then that was the beginning of people going, Hey, maybe we should trust these hippies and give them a little bit of money and a budget. And then the ultimate 10 years later, the ultimate extreme of that is, Oh, Francis Ford Coppola, this, you know, uh, this hippie who's against the war, let's give him literally unlimited amount of money and have him and all of his friends go make, uh, uh this movie out in the jungle together. And, and it's whatever his crazy vision is, you know, uh, we'll give it to him. And like, if he wants, you know, wine from Paris at this exact temperature and these plates from this exact place in Italy. So for the plantation, give it to him. Like that's a, that's pretty, that means a lot. To, I, uh, I, that's actually not how it happened though. Like this, this movie was produced independently. He raised $13 million by pre-selling the distribution rights, but there was no studio oversight and anything over $13 million he had to pay out of his own pocket. So he pre-sold, he pre-sold American <laughs> distribution okay. to, to United Artists and he pre-sold the foreign distribution rights in a handful of key territories. And that was like, here's the 13 million. That's all you're going to get for this. And he was like, well, that sucks because the movie's budgeted at $14 million. <laughs> And then from there, I think he ended up putting like 3 or $4 million of his own money into it. It's, I mean, but uh, your, your point stands, Ryan, that this is, you are seeing someone with complete and total freedom. Um, you know, doing like doing the fucking most movie ever <laughs> like yeah. this was scheduled scheduled for, for a 12 week shoot and it ended up going 240 days i mean it's it, it it takes on a life of its own at a certain point like the movie was almost like making itself there's there's another little clip that i saw in an interview where he's talking about like as a as a filmmaker and as an artist you're always you, you don't want to be pretentious, but you also want to be true to your vision. And he's like, and then at some point you just have to kind of like fucking stop and just do the fucking thing. And he's like, and if it's pretentious, then it's pretentious. He's like, but we're just kind of doing our thing. And I think there's something really interesting about the freedom that maybe he felt that he had in his ability to do something like totally as an auteur without that corporate oversight, without the stranglehold and only the inner monologue in his own head. 
anticipating what critics might say, anticipating what like art snobs might say, or anticipating what an audience might say. And that was just him, I think. But other than that, it felt like he was like, you know what, fuck it. If if I'm making this piece and it's deemed to be pretentious, well, I'm just going to fucking do it. And there's something pretty awesome about having that ability, having that freedom, having that capacity to make uh, a film, especially a grandiose, massively fucking budgeted, huge fucking production scale like to be able to do that with that level of freedom is pretty awesome hell yeah all right um i just want to let people know that if you want more apocalypse now talk raymond and i are gonna be doing a special patreon version we're gonna chat um in a little bit here we're gonna give you about a half hour of bonus content where we're gonna keep talking about this film its themes all the goodies if you want access to that episode as well as any other bonus content and all the other stuff that we have um from patreon go to patreon.com slash wisecrack and you can get access to all the other goodies yeah i think Um, we're gonna be doing a, a monthly patreon episode going forward but if you're a wisecrack patreon subscriber you will get a like every week you'll get a new bonus episode one from culture binge you'll get one from us we're we're workshopping some ideas to do just like basic wisecrack stuff some miscellaneous things just kind of throwing ideas out there trying some new formats um and to give the patreon subscribers a, a little extra bang for their buck going forward yeah 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 but before we say bye i'm gonna dig into the mailbag real here real real quick here we've got um uh no voicemails this week but if you would like to leave us a voicemail and leave your thoughts about anything we've talked about over the last few weeks or anything in the back catalog please do you can call us at 1-213-534-8807 that's 1-213-534-8807 you can leave us a voicemail with your thoughts or questions and then of course you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. All right, so the first email that we're going to look at is from Bella. Bella wants to chat about The Green Knight. Bella says, first and foremost, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Thank you for all that you do. I just want to hear your guys' opinions on the part of The Green Knight that wasn't mentioned in the episode. The actress, Alicia or Alicia Vikander, plays both Essel, Gawain's commoner girlfriend, and the lady of the castle that tempts him with sexual advances. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty certain that was her playing the role of the giant that talks to Gawain when he tries to get their attention. Somewhat obviously, I think her playing both Essel and the lady goes back to the themes of lust and temptation, how these things tempt Gawain and how he must overcome them to achieve greatness. But I was somewhat thrown for a loop with the giant. Could it be tied to the way femininity is often thematically paired with nature? Anyway, this is clearly a very surface-level analysis, and I'd love to hear more about what you guys think. Well, first of all, I don't think it's surface-level at all, Bella. Thank you so much for writing in. What do we think? Was she the giant? I didn't even pick up on that. I wasn't sure if she was the giant. I would have to check on that. Um, This is my first time uh, uh, hearing the email. Um... And I should uh, I should look that up. I'll look that up before the uh, the Patreon episode. But she does bring up a good point that we we completely failed to talk about her. I think she's wonderful in the film. Alicia Vikander is a phenomenal actor. I thought she was great. And uh, I I can see whether or not she does play the giant. I can still see how the movie is constantly pulling at these themes of like Gawain sort of you know building himself up on not necessarily just the attentions of uh, of women. Um, but you know, there, there was a a listener who contributed to the chat during that week saying, uh, you know, he's, he's trying to stand on the shoulders of giants to make himself bigger. And I, I thought that was a great contribution. And it's also, I think quite telling that he's, uh, he's trying to subordinate women throughout the film, uh, whether they be, you know, human sized Mm. or, or giant sized, you know, it's definitely, (laughs) definitely, um, part of his experience learning to, uh, not be a, a, a total asshole. Hmm. Are, are, are you guys into vor? Uh, well, if I mean, if if I were, I think I definitely would have brought up the giant scene in this movie. Yeah, everyone go check out vor right now on your Google. Or don't. Uh, there are kids listening to this. We've got we've got social studies teachers using this in their their history classes. I, for educational purposes, uh, Raymond. That's uh, this is an educational podcast. Um, I actually had no fucking clue um, that there was that the that the actress played more than one character. I did that totally went by me. Yeah, a handful of actors. A handful of actors do. Um, okay, la, final email. We'll go into one from Mallory real quick, who wants to chat about Snowpiercer. 
Email, I had to reach out to you after listening to your episode on Snowpiercer, which I thoroughly enjoy, but also couldn't help you wish, wish you would talk a bit more about the child in the engine room and discussions about whether or not society on the train can be fixed rather than just blowing the whole thing to bits. You never looped back to around to the fact that it literally cannot run without trapping a child in the engine. I can't help but feel like... This moment is a reference to The Ones Who Walk Away from Amala's by Ursula Le Guin, where rather than a nightmare train, she describes a perfect utopia that can only exist if the citizens willingly lock a single innocent child in a dark dungeon for life. I think Le Guin and Jun Ho are grappling with the same idea. How much suffering do we permit in society, even a happy society, to keep things running? Or is the only escape from suffering outside the system that creates it? That is, blow up the damn train, please. I'd love to hear your thoughts, and thanks for making such a rocking podcast, Mallory. Mallory, great thoughts. I've never read anything by Le Guin, and this is to my shame, but like it is literally on my list. I'm like, motherfucker, you gotta get around it. I've literally never read anything, so I don't know the reference to that story, but but there is something interesting about needing to sacrifice life, sacrifice innocence for the greater good. We talk about this a lot with the idea of like the noble lie um, in like the Dark Knight, um, the idea of the myths we tell ourselves in colonial history. There's some great work, um, uh, sociological work, anthropological work, literary work. Um, on this from a, a writer by the name of Rene Girard, who's a scholar who talks a lot about scapegoating and the idea of like the sacrificial system as well, that if people are interested in this, it's we've talked about it, I think, in some of our videos on, on the Dark Knight trilogy, but it's uh, G-I-R-A-R-D. He's French, Rene Girard. He writes a lot about sacrificial system and um, mimetic rivalry and, and how you have to scapegoat in order to maintain peace in a society. So there could be something there, but I, I, I had never read Le Guin, so I didn't make that connection. But any, any of you you have thoughts on this? Uh, I I have read that story. It didn't didn't even occur to me during the Snowpiercer discussion, but that was uh, that was a great contribution. I thought that was a cool email. I, I will, uh, uh, you know, are the people or are are the little kids who have hands small enough to fix this train? I mean, are we are they being sacrificed? Is that the only thing they're allowed to do, or is that just kind of like the little side gig that they got to? Uh... Well, they're they're being sacrificed in the sense that they're they're being like robbed of their humanity and self-determination everyone has chores raymond okay (laughs) i understand i understand but it is this is why she brings up this is why she brings up the short story because it is that question it's like some version of the trolley problem is it is it worth it to you know deprive one person in order for the, the the good of the many and that's i mean that that's a philosophical thread that's been pulled at uh for for decades but i'll let the philosopher take over well, also, I was going to say the idea that uh, the child has tiny little fingers and hands that can fit into the gears and things like that seems to be a direct historical nod to the idea that child labor was used precisely for this reason, as well as female labor. And there are actual quotes from uh, leaders of industry and things like that that Marx draws on, that Veblen draws on, that they talk about, where they say that, no, 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 these these people they literally said oh women are better in these factories because they have dainty little hands that can fit inside these gears or children are great because they can climb up inside and they can do that so there was an intentional exploitation of certain embodied forms of existence in order to make sure the machinery and production continue to pace so there's definitely something now is that a sacrifice? I mean, yeah, it fucking child labor is fucking terrible. And then I think um, abusing or taking advantage of one's embodied existence for the purpose of your own benefit seems also to be kind of shitty as well. So I, maybe there's something there that we could kind of draw. Totally. From this. I, I mean, I do think that there's a difference though between like I'm gonna make children make my sneakers so that my co- my corporation makes you know more money. And if this child doesn't fix this train part. Everyone, all the rest remaining remaining human humans are going to die. All of civilization is <laughs> over. You know, I mean, I I, I get the point though. I mean, I'm, I'm yes, not trying. I'm, I'm not thing, advocating though, the for, movie, these, for this the child movie labor. Is, <laughs> the movie is a metaphor. Like, Ryan right, Ryan yeah. says child exploitation. No, 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 is no. Bad, no. Just oh so yeah, yeah. That is what I said. You're right. <laughs> child exploitation is bad. Just so everybody, you know, there's no misunderstanding. <laughs> okay, we got to get out of here. We're gonna wrap up the episode. If you want more. 
this. If you want more Apocalypse Now, you know, make sure to check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash wisecrack. Um, if you want to call and contribute, that's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. Of course, you can email us, movies at wisecrack.co. Where can people find you on the internet, Raymond? Uh, yeah, you can always find me at Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. And uh, if you are a fan of the, uh, the Wisecrack streams, you can find me tomorrow, I think uh, 10 a.m. Pacific time, I'm going to be guesting on uh, Culture Binge again. Uh, Michael and Serby were kind enough to uh, to invite me onto their show uh, once more. I didn't mess things up too terribly uh, last time, so uh, I'm I'm excited to talk with them and uh, excited to see some of our uh, uh, Show Me the Meaning fans jumping into the chat over there. Hopefully, sweet and Ryan. Uh, Ryan Shorts on YouTube, Instagram, all that good stuff. I uh, released a, the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills tour with gubernatorial candidate Adam Papagian, which it's pertinent because today is election day here in California. It is. And uh, I also just saw a random catering van today and wrote a theme song for it and just slapped it up on my YouTube. So go watch that. Fucking A. 14 seconds. Sweet, sweet. And I just want to let people know that if people have any questions about Green Knight and stuff like that, our producer Matt just dropped something in the chat for us. It's actually a Reddit forum where David Lowry did an AMA, who's the director of The Green Knight. So the title of it, it's in r slash movies. It's I'm David Lowry. I wrote and directed The Green Knight. Ask me anything. And um, there's a thread with like a thousand comments and things like that on there. So if you want more Green Knight stuff, you could probably go check that out too. I'm Austin Hayden. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Insta. And then of course, please follow us at SMTM underscore POD on Twitter. Follow Wisecrack. Hit up the Patreon. All that good shit. We gotta get... Rest in peace, Snore McDonald. Oh yeah, thank we you, Ryan. You. Yeah, rest rest in peace, Norm Macdonald. Have you not heard about that, Austin? The, the he goat. died. No. Oh, sorry, you have to hear like this. But there were there were a few folks oh, in the j- chat who were asking if we would acknowledge that. And yeah, absolutely. I was wondering what they meant by talk about Norm. I was like, is that okay, Ryan? You no, you yeah. seem like oh, a big fuck. time Norm guy. So I'll you, know, you you take it, man. I mean, big, obviously, huge, big-time Norm guy. You know, watch listen. his podcast is one of my favorite things he's ever done. I mean, like every guest, and it's that, that's the best part. Usually, podcasts kind of maybe determine on the guest, but it's like no, I just can listen to Norm talk yeah. and riff for forever. So it's just such a sad loss for everybody wow. in the country. And I didn't know that he had cancer. No one did, yeah, dude. Yeah. No Apparently one. Apparently, he's been fighting it for like over a decade. Or yeah, a almost decade. a decade. Wow. It's, it's so it's it sucks. But all right, we love you, Norm. And uh, I guess it's pertinent because uh, with for this podcast, because this is the end. My only podcast, friends of. The- this is the end. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been Chelsea the Meeting!